Hi, I'm Antony Rončić and welcome to The Craft of Living. So a couple of months ago, I introduced this new series called What I've Learned From, in which I engage in dialogue with a variety of thinkers and try to present the different ways in which they have impacted my life. This is not meant to be a scholarly exploration. I'm taking the liberty of using these thinkers as a springboard, as it were, to talk about matters that really matter to me and matters that really go towards the theme of this channel, which is the craft of living. So uh, the first one thinker that I talked about was Augustine, and today I want to explore a little bit about Søren Kierkegaard. Now, in one of my very first videos for my channel, I talked about how as a teenager, I stumbled upon this book in a bookstore. This is a Serbian translation of Philosophical Fragments by uh, Søren Kierkegaard. I had no idea who Kierkegaard was. I've never heard of him. I didn't have any understanding where he was coming from in terms of his ideas. But I remember opening the pages, the first pages, and started reading them and feeling a, a particular power. Now, I cannot claim that I understood at that point what he was about, but I still, yeah, I still remember the, the edginess to his words and the depth of his reflections and the way they have left really an impression on me. Now, Kierkegaard is, is a guy who lived in the 19th century. He was born in 1813 and died in 1855, so he lived a relatively short life. But his impact on the 20th century in particular has been tremendous. A lot of what happened in and still is going on in philosophy and theology uh, derives at least some of its roots or traces back back to Kierkegaard in some significant way. Not every philosophical school, not every thinker, but, but many thinkers, yes, for sure. Existentialists, number of existentialists have been impacted by Kierkegaard and such notable theologians as Bart in his Romans commentary and Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his Cost of Discipleship really took a lot of the ideas, a lot of the inspiration from Kierkegaard. As a matter of fact, you cannot understand, let's say, Cost of Discipleship without knowing that in addition to the Bible, it was Kierkegaard who influenced Bonhoeffer or Bonhoeffer the most. So I thought of sharing some of the ideas, some of the concepts, and the way they have been really important to me and helped me approach fate in life in a certain way. The first idea is this notion of either-or, and there's actually a thick book that Kierkegaard wrote. And he believed that in some domains of existence, it is this choice between one or the other that really matters. Like, not everything in life can be defined as a both-end right? Some things you have to make a choice. You have to decide whether you're going to side on this side or side on with the other option. Uh, some things are a matter of both ends. I mean, you can love Italian cuisine and Indian cuisine. Um, even in the Bible, you have judgment and you have grace. You have the kingdom of God as being right now, here, a reality among us and something in the future. So this kind of dialectic, the both-end element is incredibly important. But there are other things, again, where that, that, that does not really apply. 
And, and a good example in the Bible would be 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah challenges Israelites to make a decision. You have to choose between Baal and God. You cannot be in between. Your non-committal stains is actually a choice against God. You, you have to go one side or the other. For those of you who are familiar with Dante's Inferno, might recall how in the vestibule, in the sort of uh, anteroom of, if I can say so, of the Inferno, are people, academics, who cannot make decisions. Right? They are paralyzed by their inability to side on one side. And you have the same thing in C.S. Lewis's, a similar thing in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, which also is filled with different individuals for whom this notion that they have to make a commitment for one thing seems to be too limited and too confining. But Kierkegaard helped me really understand that that is not true about everything in life. I mean, think about matters like such as you know, rape or genocide, some of these horrendous evils that we are confronted with. The very idea that there might be a gradation in our conversation, that there might be some shades of gray, that we need to have a dialogue of some middle point between doing it and not doing it, comes across as obscene. As a matter of fact, you introducing perplexity, you introducing a middle option, seems to be the ultimate example of moral obscenity. Now, I know this sounds very harsh and, again, very limited because we have been so conditioned to think in terms of the tertium quid, in the third thing. You know, this is one extreme, this is another extreme, but I want to find my medium sort of point, right? Um, Aristotle introduced this way back, and today we like to think in those terms as well. It just seems to be more tolerant, less straight jackety, if I can put it this way, less limiting to think about in this kind of range of, of multiplicity of options. But again, coming back to my drastic examples, uh, there are situations in which this is by no means something of a sophisticated posture. It is really a lack of moral and spiritual clarity. The idea of someone throwing acid into a girl's face because she wants to attend school, to use this example and to somehow think that, oh, let's have a conversation whether this, there is some perhaps some benefit to that action is, again, as I mentioned, an example of moral depravity, just this beautiful term that we can use in this connection. Um, for you wanting to discuss for you to finding, trying to find a middle ground is actually a sign of immaturity. So I think that is one thing that I've learned from Kierkegaard. The second thing that he is really well known for is this idea of choice. And he truly is a philosopher of choice. He believed that it is choice that connects us to the eternal. It is choice that realizes things. So you exist in this liminal space of indecisiveness, you know, just living, existing, whatever, and nothing's happening, you're drifting along, and then suddenly you are captured by a vision, 
and and you make a make a choice, right? I remember reading uh, Rich Roll's book on the Ultraman and and his conversion, so to speak, from a kind of very languid existence, an existence that was not defined in any way by any you know, physical uh, health or fitness or diet. And then one moment, you know, when he goes up the stairs and looks at his family and he barely, you know, goes up the stairs without having a elevated heart rate. And then in that moment of clarity, he realizes, I got to change my life. And then everything that happens after that. So the moment of clarity and making a choice. And if you don't know about Rich Roll, Roll, R-O-L-L, you can just find out about him and just what he has achieved and his amazing podcast that he has. So, so choice, right? makes all the difference. As a matter of fact, in, in Kierkegaard, you have this notion, and you might notice, of the aesthetic sphere or aesthetic level, which is kind of an existence defined by the pursuit of the hedonic treadmill, where you pursue one pleasure after another pleasure after another pleasure, just somehow trying to forestall or avoid boredom. Boredom is the primary characteristic, Kierkegaard believed, of a pleasure principle driven life. And then what happens is when you kind of move from this stage and you go to the ethical stage, which is primarily, primarily about making a specific choice. Suddenly your life does not become about the expenditure of your energy into all kinds of different directions. No, no, you are, you are pursuing a certain kind of vision. And we can talk about what those ways of life might be, but the very principle is important. Like you, you, you go after something, and that is that is very important for uh, Kierkegaard. This this importance of of choice, this importance of deciding. And nowadays we have a lot of literature out there, and, and I'm going to talk about this and engaging a little bit in the future on minimalism and essentialism and kind of peering down to these most important things in life, leveraging the highly valuable and putting aside the not-so-valuable things and, and all of that. And in some ways, Kierkegaard is about that. I mean, he, he wants you to focus on that one important thing and make this as a sort of uh, project of your life. I mean, just think about it, right? About a guy who, or a girl or a gal who, who tries to commit himself or herself to being ultra- runner and everything that follows that right training regimen sleeping how to use your money how to spend your time um, what what you eat and all of this so this is kind of an example of a directed directed life so that is very important for him Num- number three the third thing uh, that i uh, i'm really uh often think about when I think of Kierkegaard is his concept of anxiety. Now, of course, when you look at the scriptures and you look at other wisdom traditions and religions and ancient philosophy and more contemporary philosophy, sort of uh, Michel de Montaigne and his writings and his essays, they all pursue some notion of anxiety-free life. We can define it in terms of you know, mindfulness, contentment, uh, rootedness in the present, 
um, and all of these different ideas. I mean, th th that is a given, right? But Kierkegaard means something, means something different by the notion of anxiety. Uh, for him, anxiety is this awakening, right? This opening of eyes to the awesome responsibility of self-creation. When you really understand that by the fact that you are a free being, due to the fact that you invested with autonomy, that you have the capacity to destroy yourself. You have the capacity and the freedom and liberty to spit into God's face. Uh, you can make choices that are going to lead you into a certain direction, which is going to be end up in a disaster. And the fact that we can self-destruct and destroy our lives it is, is something that is very important to, to Kierkegaard. C.S. Lewis famously in his Mere Christianity has this notion, has this idea that there are no insignificant choices. Now, this can be a paralyzing thought, you know, that you think oh, every single decision has this great burden of self-determination. Uh, and yeah, perhaps that has to be taken with some reservations. But, but this notion that choices are turning us into one or the other person, other human being that we are, is kind of a basic and yet so fundamental insight. And the fact that we can have choices that are going to turn us eventually, might turn us into moral monsters or people who have wasted their existence, that struck uh, Kierkegaard as incredibly important. And that's why he writes a lot about anxiety. I think another thing that is quite central to uh, Kierkegaard, and that is perhaps a fourth point I want to mention, is this notion of God as the holy other. God as someone who is completely different than us. There's this infinite qualitative distinction between us and God. God cannot be put into a predetermined mold. He cannot be controlled. He's not a deus ex machina, you know, the kind of deity that's being rolled onto the stage in these ancient Greek dramas to provide a resolution or whatever. He's not a cosmic bartender. He's not my butler who is there, who needs to jump at my wishes. That God has purposes that I don't understand, that I cannot fathom, is really an idea that is so central in an age in which the trivialization of God is certainly quite frequent. Now, I would be the last one to say that we shouldn't relate to God, to the divine, in terms of friendship, in terms of, of a sense that God surrounds us, that he is imminent, that he is closer to myself than I am to myself, as Augustine says in his Confessions. Yet, at the same time, a sense of awe and a sense of humility a sense of recognition that I know so very little about the broader purposes and of the cosmos and the universe and what God is about, of his holiness and awesomeness and otherness. I think that that is something that we really need to uh, pay attention to and something that is perhaps very, very important in our contemporary age. And finally, what is quite fascinating and, and quite frankly fun in Kierkegaard is his critique of Christendom. His critique of nominal 
hypocritical Christianity is just uh, so deeply acerbic and has a certain, really a very strong edge to it. He's critical of formalism, this notion that you're defined as a Christian by virtue of doing certain things, like I'm, I'm going to church and giving money and all of this, and that somehow makes you a Christian. He just just levels a, a unmitigated critique against that kind of confusion. Also, the idea that Christianity has to do with intellectual commitment purely, as if truth is not something that needs to be absorbed and put into life and something that needs to be chosen and appropriated. Right? For Kierkegaard, you're not a believer if you say, I believe such and such and such. You are a believer if the truth is part of you, if truth is indwelling you. You're a believer when you actually live out your deepest commitments. And so I know that I know that you have truth when I listen not to your analysis, but when I watch and observe your appropriation of truth. And I think that is quite quite important. And given that, he is obviously deeply critical of any forms of Christianity in which sim- you're Christian simply by virtue again of being born into a certain country where. Being religious is just part of national identity. But let me end with a wonderful example that he has in provocations. He talks about a situation where you have constipation. Constipation, you need to solve the problem. And there's a certain medicine which, if you drink in full, has a laxative effect. But if you drink it only halfway, happens to have the opposite effect. Right, a constipating effect. So let's say you start drinking this, you know, medication. You drink it uh, halfway through, but it's so bitter that you cannot stand it. And you decide, well, and you say to yourself, well, you know, I cannot drink the whole thing, but let me at least drink half of the amount. Well, that won't solve your problem because half of the of the amount may actually result, not may result, but will result in exactly the opposite effect. It's better for you not to drink any medication than to decide to go only halfway and drink half of the cup. And you can see what this is about, right? It is this idea that, you know, oh, you know, I will, you know, be a follower of Christ or I will commit myself to this. Uh, following Jesus wherever he leads. But, you know, I will do it on my own terms. You know, like in the Gospels, you know, the guy who said, oh, let me bury my father and then I will come. Or the guy who says, let me first harvest my field and then I will come. And while these things are important, Jesus completely rejects them as demonic, in a sense. And Bonhoeffer uses actually that term. Why? Because you are determining, you are entering into a prenuptial agreement. I mean, you are determining what you will bring to the relationship, right? You are entering a contractual arrangement where you define what it means to be surrendered to God. 
And Jesus says, whoever thinks that way is not worthy of myself. And Kierkegaard is using this idea and he says, well, you know, every time you refuse to step into a relationship with God and you say, well, you know, I, I want to make four steps. I will make two steps because this thing doesn't suit me or I cannot do it right now. Or you have sort of a segment of your life over which God does not have a say so. You make that kind of arrangement, an arrangement. Kierkegaard says, no, 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 wait a minute. You're not actually making two steps forward. Instead of four steps forward, you make two steps forward. No, no, no. You are going two steps back. It's better for you to stay in place and not to do anything than to enter into this kind of bantering relationship with God. So this is a little bit about Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, with whom I have journeyed now for more than 30 years and who never ceases to challenge me and inspire me. There's hardly any class that I teach where Kierkegaard doesn't show up in one form or another. So thanks for listening. Uh, live well and until soon. Bye.